Welcome to the Pit Stop Podcast, your fast-paced podcast for Formula One news and analysis. Throughout the Formula One season, we will be recapping every race as well as breaking down the biggest stories on and off the track, all before setting you up for the next race on the Formula One schedule. Whether you're a seasoned Formula One fan or you have just discovered the rush of racing, this podcast has something for you. Okay, here we go. Hello, welcome to Pit Stop. Uh, this is Jordan, not Braden. Uh, Braden is away this weekend. Tyler Walzak, Jordan Tyler Coltman with you here. We are going to recap the Miami Grand Prix, the first of its kind, the second race uh, in North America, or uh, in America, I should say. There's going to be two races. We'll go back to Austin again. We will also see a race, of course, in Canada shortly in a couple, couple short weeks. So it's exciting to have racing in prime time here in North America, midday race for all of those sports fans watching at home in Canada or across uh, the United States. And it was, let's just say it was something. It was interesting. Uh, lots to talk about. We're going to get to that. Let's just really quickly recap. If you didn't catch it or you don't remember what happened, if Max Verstappen finishes a race, he wins. That's the trend we are seeing. Yeah. Uh, he took over the race lead, I believe, on like the eighth lap after some good use of DRS. Um, and then he just didn't look back, um, both Ferraris finishing two and three. So a good result for Carlos Sainz, certainly after some struggles and then four going also to the, uh, other Red Bull in, in Sergio Perez, Mercedes had a bounce back week. They finished five, six, and then, uh, Valtteri Bottas, I guess we'll finish sort of, I don't have to go through the entire list here, but Valtteri Bottas also showed well. So we'll talk about all that. Let's jump in here first though, Tyler, lots of expectation going into Miami, obviously, because, this race is really on the calendar for one reason, and it's because of the growth of the popularity of Formula One in America, right? And we know yes. we've talked at length about that all season. It's probably the biggest story around Formula One, maybe one of the biggest stories in sports, just this explosion of excitement based on the Netflix series and all of these different uh, things sort of coming together. They've put this race in Miami because it's a big party city. It's a beautiful backdrop. And well, what do we get? We got, uh, I mean, <laughs> the Miami race was different than any other race only because I think that the social media explosion of the first like the practice days and qualifying, having all those like that one picture with Michael Jordan, Beckham, uh, Tom Brady and Lewis Hampton is like that type of stuff in Miami is exactly why they went to Miami is because they're right. bringing in all these huge stars and celebrities for this race. Um, I think I read somewhere today or yesterday that Stephen Ross, who owns that stadium and owns the Miami Dolphins, hosted this race. And on this weekend, he made more money than he does the entire NFL weekend hosting game or season, entire yeah. NFL season yeah. hosting games. So that's what having a race does to your city to your area but this was the downside of having a new track is that it's the first time anyone's raced on it and it wasn't great racing um we they talked about it in practice they talked about it in qualifying that there's one racing line in this uh because you go off that racing line you're spinning and we saw a lot of guys spin in practice um and it seems like they got it under control during this race there were some other things that happened some guys got hit and lando and uh, Gasly obviously connected, um, but it was it was a kind of a boring race until the last ten laps when there was a safety car. But even then, that all that stuff got sorted two or three laps into the green flag again. 
So it wasn't your most exciting. The buildup was bigger than the actual race itself is basically what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, ways. no, no, for sure. And the, the hype around it, I, I was saying this after to somebody, I, you know, the challenge sometimes when you hype something up as much as this race was hyped up is that you've set yourself up for inevitable disappointment, no matter how mm -hmm. uh, good the product ends up being in the end. If you have set the expectation level so high that it's unachievable, then you're just dooming yourself to failure. And I think that that is partly, they were somewhat the victim of that. Look, we knew going into this race after the results throughout the early parts of the weekend, Thursday, Friday, and even qualifying on Saturday, that the track wasn't going to be spectacular. It wasn't going to lead to spectacular racing. It was a pretty pedestrian and pretty kind of boring track. There wasn't a lot interesting in it. The drivers weren't huge fans of it. You know, even the even the flip side expectation, which was like, well, it's very narrow, uh, didn't actually lead to that many incidents. So it kind of wasn't, no. it wasn't dramatic. It wasn't exciting in a lot of different ways because of that. I think the challenge is, and maybe this is a really, I don't know, kind of philosophical idea, but when you think about the growth of the, the sport in America and the expectations that are put on um, this kind of event, being that we're only here because there's so much more fandom around it. You have to be very, very careful. American sports fans, sports fans in general are not stupid. They can tell when a product isn't good and just, you know, forcing something, you know, forcing a square peg into a round hole for the purposes of making money. And number two, trying to like grow that audience, you, you do risk the, like kind of the, the balancing act of like, you could hurt that audience. You could kind of turn them off of what this is. Now I'm sure the people who attended the event had a great time because there's a lot of things to do around it. You know, it was a beautiful day, you know, whether you were at the pool party venue, whether you were just in the grandstand, I'm sure that the experience there was very different than the experience on TV, mm -hmm. but as a, you know, dedicated Formula One fan, it didn't, it, it, it lacked more than it, than it offered, I guess I yeah. would say in, in what the, the entire event ended up being. And there is something kind of, I don't know, cheapening about the overall F1 brand when you, when you try to make something that's kind of artificial happen. We talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before you, you, you know, you brought up the differences in certain types of racetracks and how people have sort of tracks they enjoy. And some people aren't huge fans of Monaco because there's not a lot of overtaking and it can kind of be a bit of a pedestrian race as well. But there's an authenticity to Monaco because of the history that's been developed there that yeah. is lacking when you try to make this. And when you literally have a racetrack built around a fake lagoon, yeah. there is a real lack of authenticity that people see right through. And, and that, 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 that kind of hurt it, I think. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was laughable to see that. It's like, oh, put it on. If you want that Miami feel of boats on the water, then put the race yeah. Oh, goddamn water it's right no. there you can see it in every single photo yeah. like just put it there so that's it's kind of like the super bowl if you think about it it's like the halftime show can't be better than the game yeah. because then it's you're right everyone just goes well the game sucked who cares it doesn't matter like yeah. and this was kind of one of those the fanfare leading up to it i will say practice one and practice two like you and like me and our, our our chat here you're going nuts looking at these times like mercedes was back mercedes had switched up their rear wing mercedes was fast like i think russell was second in p2 first or, or first. first and yeah. and then they they tinkered again right yeah. before p3 and it like it just got rid of all the work that they did for yeah. p1 p2 which is frustrating i mean they still finished fifth and sixth which is again george russell top five only driver yeah. to be in top five um, I know uh, Lewis Hamilton wasn't so thrilled about that, 
but um, that's tough. I mean, George Russell right now is a guy who's very consistent, so he's going to be keep. They're going to keep letting him race. Um, yeah, for sure. And you know, it's interesting. Um, I think it was Martin Brundle made a comment during the race about it, or near the end of the race, sort of identifying. You know, one of the things, one of the advantages that George Russell does have over Lewis Hamilton is that he, in the very recent history, has driven a really difficult to drive car in at Williams. Okay. And I think there is some value to that. Lewis Hamilton's most recent experience, let's say for eight years, has been driving the top car in the sport that is by all standard, you know, is the standard and by, yeah. by all measures is a very, you know, easy car to drive. It was tailored to his needs as a driver, tailored to his, you know, how he liked oversteering and understeering or how he liked it tuned and the troubles that they're finding in this specific car. I think George Russell was doing a better job adapting to, because again, he's had more recent experience having to figure that out at yep. Williams. That was, you know, so there's a difference of experience level. Obviously Lewis Hamilton has, has the advantage being a seven time world champion, but he hasn't had to fight a car quite the way George yeah. has recently. Yeah. And I'm glad like the car now like, it is getting better and we're seeing Mercedes is doing the things to make it better. I mean, I think they did a little bit too much obviously in that last sure. day, but George Russell, even, I think it was him today complaining like I can't be in this car for 30 races it is painful to drive yeah. this car like just in terms of the porpoising that we always talk about yeah. and it's like a, something that's just constantly going to be there this season is not going to go away but the guys are starting to feel the effects of bouncing around in there their necks are hurting they're getting bruised up they're getting banged up and there was a lot of safety issues with this miami track as well like the the two crashes ocon during p2 or p3 or p1 uh, one of the things he spun out and yeah. signs spun out. Well, those guys said there was no reason that that had to hurt as much as it did because there was nothing on the side of the barriers. The same with the pit wall uh, going into the pit lane, that stripe that they had down there, the drivers asked them to remove that because all the debris was piling up there. And they're like, it's not comfortable to go over that. Yeah. Um, so it's the cars are still not perfect, but they're, you can see them getting better. They're getting like Mercedes is getting faster. Red Bull is spending more money. So eventually they're going to have to slow down their, their upgrades yeah. because they're spending all their money now, whereas Mercedes is going to be able to slowly catch up. Um, Ferrari's definitely going to be able to catch up because they've got a head start on yeah. everybody else. Yeah. So, uh, and this is the other thing I didn't like about this track. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought, but this track was, it was fast and then it was very slow. Yeah. And then it was fast and then it was very, very slow. Like the turns were so slow and the straightaways were just like, you Red Bull has the best straightaway car. And that seems like the only passing line was on that, uh, that one straight, the back straight. The With only the exception. And let's give a little bit of props to our favorite driver out there. Lance Stroll is the only driver who was able to make a pass in one of those chicanes. And yeah. it was a very risky move to be fair, but he pulled it off. So at least give him props for trying something different than everybody else. But no yeah. one else, as you say, could figure out how to, how to make the overtakes happen outside the DRS zones. And as you, I mean, they were straightaways. Yeah. And, and like, actually Stroll had a great race and yeah. the, when him and Latifi were battling out for a bit there and they're talking about the Canadians are, I was like, please don't crash into each other. Like, just like, you know, like one it's Miami, but you have a lot of Canadians there. Um, and they had a great race. Alex Albon had a fantastic race, got his first points of the season. Um, it's, it was just like the, I also say that um, Perez tries to pass signs in like with the eight laps left or something in that corner and yeah. uh, Perez locked up and signs did a great job of seeing that and this kind of letting him blow yeah. by and then yeah. and recorrect. And that was the guy I thought signs was going to um, go out for another race and have another DNF. But 
that was like it. That's like all there was to talk about. It was it, like the Gasly and Norris battle, or not even a battle. They just hit each other. Was not. I mean, I don't. I obviously I'm a Gasly fan, so I don't think it was his fault. Like um, Alonso got the five second penalty for starting the original move that made Gasly go wide and have to come back in, but it was just a kind of a fluke thing and ended both their races. But I mean, that's like all there was to talk about. Like that that five minutes was that was it. Like. Like the pit stops were okay. They were slow, some of them, and it cost uh, cost some drivers some times and the undercuts didn't work great. And it was just one of those races where I was watching it like, okay, this is the, like, you got 20 laps left. The places they're in now are the places that they're going to finish because no one well, seems to want to do any passing. You you mentioned the pit stops though, because that there was sort of, uh, a, the one of the slower pit stops led to one of the more interesting and certainly one of the the only interesting parts of this race, which was Lando Norris was about a second and a half slow on his pit stop, which meant he came out into traffic, ended up without warm enough tires to be able to compete with the guys that were there. I think he was passed by both Aston Martins and, and really fell down the charts. And then all of a sudden, you know, that's where he ends up in the position he's in to make contact later with Gasly that leads to our only safety car and really only opportunity for anything to change in the race. And yet it still didn't. Right. I mean, Leclerc just did not have um, the, the same kind of aggression and ability to pass Max. And I would argue, I think that that is where, although Max is still very young, the experience of the fight he had all season long last year with Lewis, you're seeing the fruits of, of that in, in how he has developed as a driver. Leclerc hasn't been in these kind of dog fights the same way Max was all of last year. So when mm-hmm. Max gets in these situations, as he did here, chasing, had a great start, got himself up into second, immediately he's he's hunting down the Ferrari and then was able to make a very aggressive move to, to make the pass, but he used DRS over the course of two laps to close the gap, get himself there, makes the, the overtake on eight, and then obviously pulls away with that fl- flat out speed he has. But you even mm-hmm. after the safety car, when they're bunched back up and Leclerc really has the advantage as the, as the one chasing with the DRS opportunity to pass Max never gave him a, a, a chance. Yeah. He used his battery really, really well. He, he protected, he defended incredibly well. He kept those tires alive. The, the Red Bull is clearly doing a better job of um, tire maintenance throughout it. So the experience from last year is showing Max looks like the sort of the wily veteran in that sort of duel between he and, and Leclerc. And I mean, let's be honest, as, as, as much expectation as we had on the fight for the top being a couple people in it, this is Max and Charles is now to sort of sort out for the yeah. foreseeable future, unless something dramatic changes. Um, but I think I would give Max the edge in that fight to start here because so far this season, when he has had the opportunities, he has taken advantage of them. And really it's only when the car has failed him that he really hasn't been able to stay in that fight. Um, we have one, uh, uh, listener question, which we've now started hey. to make a, a thing. And I wanted to pose it to you because you kind of brought it up. So um, you mentioned a few times here, you know, uh, practice one, practice two, all of these different practice sessions um, that are leading up to the race. And the, the fan question was this week, why do we have practice uh, in this sense? Like what, what is the benefit of it? What's the point of it? And what really do the teams look for during practice so as a fan who's new to the sport i I think that's why they're posing this question they're like well there's no points it isn't really a race what what's the benefit or importance of practice how how would you answer that for me like just to speak fan to fan to the the person who asked the question is you use every week you're somewhere new and every track is extremely different in terms of corners straights um weather 
uh, elevation, everything's different. And your car is going to act differently on each one. Like, so for instance, in Miami, uh, those front right tires were going very, very quickly. You could see that with Leclerc in like lap 11, they started talking about how they're front right because there's more turns going right than, yeah. than some of the other tracks. So you want to be able to use your, your P1, your P2, and your P3, mostly one and two until you've got what you think you have for P3. And it's just trying to find those little settings, like a little wedge here, um, which tires you're going to be fastest on. Um, everything that you had from the last race is a little different because the setup's going to be different and based on the new track that's coming like Monaco and Monza are completely different. And so you want to have a, a certain downforce based on how much straight there is, how much turn there is. You want to figure this stuff all out in P1, especially if you're upgrading your car, like Mercedes just put a new rear wing on this last week. So they don't have time to just go out and be like, all right, what, how does it feel? Like these are practice sessions because you are constantly changing your car in between two weeks and, and one week here. And you're trying to find little things to obviously make yourself better throughout the season. And the only way you can test those out on track conditions is practice. So and you can also kind of see what other cars are doing and it gives you a little bit more advantage. And it's uh, some gamesmanship because people will hide what they're doing in P1, in P2. Um, and it's just basically what it is. It's trying to figure out what the setup for that weekend is going to look like. And every, every, like I every track is different. So you need these times to do that. And especially if you are having major upgrades to your car, this is the only time you're able to figure out if they're working or hurting. So, uh, yeah, I think that you did a really good job explaining all of that. And the second piece of it is it isn't just like practice the way you'd expect like a hockey team or a football team to practice right. because outside of race weekends, there are very strict rules about the cars being allowed to be literally turned on and used because mm -hmm. they're preventing teams from just going out every other weekend and making a whole bunch of changes. So, so in the old days, you used to have a lot more testing opportunities where you would take your car out and try different setups and things. They've reduced the amount of time you're allowed to do that to almost nothing. So really, these are the only times when, you know, the full team, the drivers, everybody's able to actually put whatever work has been developed and planned for the car back at the factory, whether it's physical upgrades or it's what settings upgrades or whatever. These are the only opportunities to do that. And as you pointed out, which was great because it illustrated this, why this question I think is a good one to understand the sport even better. You know, in Mercedes case, they've struggled early in the season. They came into this weekend with some changes, as you said, upgrades. We see them work in the first two sessions and then they really one or two settings differently. They really lost all of that pace again in, in final practice three. They basically just undid what they had done and yet they still couldn't get back to where they had just been. So it's a very like, we're talking about like feather thin uh, margins for how these cars operate and really figuring out, as you say, you know, gathering as much data as they can, preparing themselves for all of those things. And so anyway, I thought I would tuck that in there just because we were kind of already on it. Let's go back to Miami for a second um, and talk about sort of where uh, the other the other sort of lessons we learned. So obviously Norris struggled and that was frustrating for, for McLaren who had had a couple good weeks. Um, the, the big thing for, you know, for me looking at this race outside of the, the top, you know, two or three teams was just the results from some of the other teams that we've seen coming around. So, I was really impressed uh, through most of the race with um, uh, Mick Schumacher and how well he was driving. He was in position to get his first points until unfortunately he made contact with Sebastian Vettel quite late in the race, which was 
both, uh, you know, frustrating for both of those drivers, but also, you know, difficult when they have such a great relationship, you know, Sebastian Vettel's a bit of a parental figure to, to Mick Schumacher. Uh, and both obviously didn't think they were in the wrong in that incident, but how frustrating for Mick who'd had a great weekend, you know, they've been sort of quiet, but throughout the season, we've had these moments where you can really see the development that Haas has done. Um, and both in how well Kevin Magnuson has done, but now it's nice to see Schumacher starting to make some improvements in that way too. And, you know, he, he deserved a better fate, I guess, than he ended up getting, but what were your impressions of the Haas cars this weekend? Uh, yeah, like it's, Magnuson is such a good driver and it's tough to not watch him every race now and kind of wonder what he's doing because he's, he's constantly up there in like the top eight holding yeah. on to those spots. And then it's like, it seems like with Haas and just unfortunate lucky stuff is every once in a while, something like this happens with Schumacher where they're talking about him all race too. Like this is his best race. This is his best race. He's going to get points. Yeah. And then two laps later mistake. Yeah. Mistake. Um, and I do think that Magnuson coming back to that team was huge. Uh, like just a, a great happy accident. Uh, I think these guys are still going through growing pains of having a car that can compete. And the, uh, this is how you see that with Schumacher having that little one mistake this weekend when he was in, in points. Um, also like the same with uh, Albon this week, like he, yep. he got it done. This is the week, like he actually like watching him race this weekend was fun. Like he was very, very good and he stayed in the points and he got them and was happy to see him up there. And um, Valtteri yeah, Bottas first point, as well. For, first points for Williams this season. So that's great. Yeah. Super great. And um, Bottas had a mistake yeah. where he locked up and went wide and he was in fifth and he gave those spots up to the yeah, Mercedes. Both, but, he gave uh, them both up. Yeah. Yeah. Both up there, which he probably hated seeing sure. those two cars go past him, but it's races like this where it is kind of boring at the top. Like let's face it. It was boring at the top of this race after yeah. the, after the eighth lap. By lap yeah. By lap nine, turn, it yeah. was decided. It yeah. was decided. Um, and for Stappen, is very very good i hate that he's very good he's very good and i hate it because he's one of those guys that he's i don't like like brad yep. marchant scored five points in the boston bruins game before the race started and i was already angry because i hate him too but he's very good so and when verstappen passed signs right off the turn one uh right off the top and then he passed the clear it was like okay well this race is over what's going on with uh schumacher like we got good 15 laps of watching schumacher and be like hey look at this is there comes this kid he's he's finally putting it all together and then unfortunate uh, instant. And so you move on to Albon, like, Hey, this, here's this kid. Like, I can't believe he's in a great spot here. Even like, uh, like Latifi and Stroll both had a great race as well. Uh, Latifi was 14th, but Stroll was in the points. Um, it's like, it's slow races like this, where you actually get to enjoy watching your Kevin Magnusons and your Schumachers uh, compete for points. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that, I think you really beautifully articulated early in the season, just the value of like, when you really, if you really want to truly experience and enjoy this sport, you have to look past the top four, past the top three, you know, you really do have to look down the table and start to follow some of these other battles, because although they may not be competing for the Grand Prix wins, they are competing for really valuable points for their teams. And they kind of know where they are in the pecking order. So they know where they expect to be or want to be. And yeah. that's really what they're fighting for. You know, I think Valtteri Bottas strongly believes that, you know, he is in a position here to be a top five driver uh, at the end of the season, if he can really turn this, this car into its full potential. And so far, you know, he's had some great outings, some great points. Um, I think, you know, he, he's one of those drivers who has just quietly, you know, kind of from, from the middle of the pack, just been consistent. Um, mm -hmm. 
obviously difficult day for his teammate um, Zhao, who I don't think made it through three laps just because of a mechanical issue. Nothing he could do. Yeah. I mean, that's out of his hands and must be very frustrating. Um, but for Bottas, he's quietly been putting a really, really solid season together in, you know, a less than, um, you know, uh, no, certainly not one of the most competitive cars. And yet he's made it one of the most competitive cars in the midfield, which is fantastic. And Alfa Romeo must just be over the moon after the kind of struggles they've they've seen in the last couple couple seasons. Absolutely. I got a question for you, actually. Now yeah. that we just talked about uh, Alfa Romeo is when uh, a teammate like so uh, Bottas and Zhao, when yeah. you see your teammate go down so early in a race because of a mechanical failure, how much of your attention goes to talking to your race director about what their problem is and if it will affect you? Because you have to I, think. Yeah, for sure. And, and we've, we saw that earlier in the year when, when we first lost Max in the first race, immediately Sergio was worried. And of course, it ended up being that his car also had failure. But I think it definitely comes into, into play. I think that the good drivers are able to compartmentalize that very quickly. They have to trust that their engineers are going to give them the critical information. I think, to be honest with you, it's on that side of, of the equation where the real panic sets in that I think yeah. the, other, the other half of the garage is trying to get as much information from the other side as they can to just be able to start watching their own data and be more aware of where the problem may have been. But we also have to remember like each of these cars have slightly different setups and we don't mm -hmm. know exactly. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's been reported. I don't know exactly what the, what the issue was, but if it's something that's isolated to like, you know, a specific part of the car, then it could be easy to turn it off. It's a good question though, because I do think that certain drivers, especially more inexperienced drivers, it probably does creep in. And then that's, it, there's a little nagging thing in your head the whole time. Um, because it's a factor you are driving very similar, if not, you know, identical equipment. Um, yeah. we, we also didn't really mention yet. Sergio Perez finished this race with like a significant struggle to get the car all the way through and yet still was able to push it there. I think he was saying by the end of it, he was losing something like, you know, somewhere up in the 10 to 15% of his full power on the straightaways. And yet it just shows you the dominance of those cars because he was still able to hold off the Mercedes by, I think all, almost upwards of eight, eight to nine, almost 10 seconds by the end of the race. So uh, it was still, you know, he still had a lot of power left and yet he was still limping there. So Red Bull still has a lot more questions to answer. They've clearly sacrificed a little bit of reliability, if not a lot of reliability for the speed they're getting. And you have to wonder if eventually those chickens come to roost or, or, you know, this is just the way they hobble through the whole year. If they get enough points, as we said, Max Verstappen finishes races, he wins. He's certainly closing the gap on, on, on Charles. Charles finishing second definitely helped him, you know, maintain the lead in the driver's standing. But, um, and I do, I just wanted to mention, because I kind of joked about it, but like Valtteri Bottas is in eighth place and the only cars ahead of him belong to McLaren's Mercedes, Ferraris, or Red Bull. So he is the best of the rest right now when you think about it. And the other alpha is all the way down. I think Zhao's got one point. So um, he's done pretty well, all things considered, uh, after stepping yeah. a long way down. Uh, obviously, you know, for, from Alfa Romeo's perspective, this is huge. If they can hold off a team like Alpine or they can beat Alfa Tori, that's a huge improvement from where they've been in the last couple of years. Their goal is, is definitely, you know, to fight for fourth, but really realistically, if they can hold on to fifth throughout the season as the constructor, they will be thrilled with the results yeah. they're getting, especially with a rookie driver who is growing and shaping uh, his career, because as, as he gets more confident too going into future seasons, you know, whether Bottas stays there for 
two, three, four, however many years, if, if he's the experienced driver and Zhao starts to catch up to him, they have a legitimate chance of being able to compete for, for fourth and maybe eventually third. So that'd be great to see. Um, you know, it's kind of nice to see one of those bottom teams jump up there. And, and, and although we've seen Haas have good moments and we've seen, you know, as you say, Albon gets a couple points for Williams, those are great, but they're just not quite where Alfa Romeo is so far this season. And largely, I would say that's because of Valtteri Bottas. I, oh, it's one hundred percent because of Valtteri Bottas. It's it. They are in a very good position where um, they have a veteran driver who is like he's not right out the door, but he's going to get to that age soon. And maybe just as he's getting to that spot about thinking about retirement, that's when Zhao comes and says, "I'll take over from here." They bring in another kid and and make that formula work for them because that I I feel like that's the best way you have like I put a teammate together. It's it's a veteran and a rookie, and you just need that veteran to want to teach as much as you need that rookie to have the ability to learn because some people just don't have the ability to learn from someone they're competing with. Um, so if, if that works out well for them, they could be right. They could be fourth, fifth for a long time. And it's good to see. It seems like every season in formula one, you always have the top recently it's been the top two Mercedes and Red Bull, but Ferrari's always been trying to get up there that now that they are there, your midfield is changing with like Haas and Alfa Romeo instead of, where it was just McLaren and um, uh, Aston Martin and, and those types last year, like each year that four, five, six becomes a little different. Someone surprising jumps in and, and Alfa Romeo is that surprise this year. I thought they were going to finish last place. When we started the very oh, yeah. first podcast yeah. before the first race, I said Alfa Romeo is going to be garbage this year. And I am completely wrong. Yeah. That is Botas has done so many good things with them. And obviously their, their directors and their team uh, engineers are, also 50 to 60% responsible for that, but you still got to have a driver that's wanting to help. For sure. Well, uh, any last thoughts on Miami before we leave it here? I mean, obviously it lacked a little bit of the sparkle we were hoping it would have, um, but you know, it certainly made up for that, I suppose, with celebrity appearances and sort of the, the hoopla surrounding it, but you, you'd kind of like it all to, I don't know, meet up to those expectations they set very high ones i guess this is the question i would leave it with and i'll get your opinion on this so if this is like an appetizer for what we think vegas is capable of being in as far as one of those like attraction races where people will travel from a great distance to you know a a popular tourist destination for a formula one weekend um do you think that there are opportunities here, obviously, for Formula One to learn from this to make sure Vegas doesn't have the same kind of like, I don't know, lukewarm quality of racing? Um, or do you think Formula One is frankly just happy with the results of, of what they got here? Do you think that they, I don't know, are they, are they are they aware enough of the response or do you think, the you know, are we in the minority here? Do you think most people were just happy with how this went? Uh, I, I don't know if people, I, it's weird because some of the other people I talked to during the race was like, Oh, well, if there is a safety car, this whole thing can change. I'm like, I don't want to root for a safety car. I want to root for racing. I understand that when a safety car happens, everybody bunches up and you do get a little more racing over the next five or six laps, but you never should have to root for it. And I think that Vegas, if they take anything from this Miami race, it is that your fanfare is going to be there already because it's Vegas. And this is what you kind of mentioned earlier is that it's a huge place, but you do need the quality to be good. I don't know if formula one, this is the thing is like, do they care more about the product or do they care more about how much money it brought in? Because I'm sure that Miami brought in a ton of money for them. Oh, yeah. And that's, if they leave with money, they might just be like, yeah, it was, we were happy. Nothing crazy went wrong. There was no controversy. Um, Cause there's like Monaco 
does not the greatest race all the time, but it has the fanfare and the history to back it up. So if Vegas takes anything from this, it's just got to make sure that there's not one racing line. That's the key, I think, that came out of Miami is that there was only one clean, safe racing line and none of the drivers wanted to leave it, which is why they didn't want to turn, like um, pass anybody or take an unnecessary risk. Um, also, I think the turns were a little too slow that you couldn't keep speed to go in. Like Ferrari's better in turns. They're faster in turns, but the turns were a little too slow for my liking that it was not a passable situation. So if Vegas just learns anything, your product is going to be good based on the fanfare, just make sure that the track is raceable, not just a track. Just don't put together a track, make it like, I hope they have, they've got, they've tried a bunch of different scenarios, I'm sure with the actual track itself, but just make sure that you can pass in certain areas, both straightaways and corners. That, that mixture is very important, I believe in Formula One for an average fan. I think that's fair. I think that that's definitely my takeaway from Miami is that they sacrificed a little bit of the quality of the actual racing product for the uh, hoopla surrounding it. And I mm -hmm. think that there, as you say, needs to be not only a balance, but I would argue that when you look at who your audience is, your paying customers at the gate are one thing. Um, the paying audience at home who is, who's watching the sport and is obviously consuming the advertising that's paying for your television product is a much larger audience. Mm -hmm. And if you want to keep their investment and keep their attention, you better make sure that the actual quality of racing uh, is at the utmost height it can possibly be. And, and they have the opportunity to do that as they continue to develop and introduce new tracks. That has to be a factor there. Obviously, people love overtaking. They want it to be a competitive race. That's a part of it. It's got to be raceable. It's got to be safe and drivable for those, for the drivers. You know, I think, you know, I think you were the first one to sort of point out that yeah, I don't think these drivers are enjoying this very much. They were certainly grumbling about it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they care too much about whether or not it's, it's a huge, you know, uh, uh, visual spectacle at the end of the day, they want to be able to get in the car and, and get the most out of their car on a good track, you know? Yeah. And obviously like, to be fair, we're comparing it to a lot of tracks that have a lot of history and have done some development over the years and have it made takes adjustments. Yep. It does take time to figure it out, but it also feels like this is one of those uh, first sort of jumps into the deep end here in North America, where you are on a brand new track. You know, it's not like Austin, which again, we're dealing with the track in the Americas. Like this is a well-designed, well-built, well-maintained track. This is a brand new track that was built around a stadium for the purposes of the, you know, the, 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 as you say, the, the owner of the Miami dolphins in the stadium is the whole reason this is here. He wants it built like this. They put what they put into it, but you do have to wonder if they, if, you know, I don't know. It's the, it, it, it's the balance of let's get into this market at all costs or make sure that as we do so, we do it the right way. I guess that would yeah. be my, you know. like don't the, the fanfare of the race should not come ahead of the conditions of the race. The track yeah. quality should always be more important. I get that they want to bring people in because everything's about money, yeah. but your product does, your product has to be there. And I don't know if Miami did that. Yeah. I guess uh, only time will tell to see how they, what they do with this track moving forward. If it, if it gets a retooling next season or adjustment next season, we're going to get to a very uh, well-driven track here in a minute. We'll yes. do that after the break. Uh, that That's Miami. We'll be right back. This week's episode is brought to us by Ellipses Thinking. Ellipses Thinking is the newest podcast from the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Host Greg Dowler-Coltman shares his conversations with people actively engaged in their own creative adventures those who identify as artists, and those who choose to experience life through an artistic lens. 
They shed light on relationships that shape and inspire us as we meet the challenges, discoveries, and learnings we make when we courageously invite our creative spirit forth. You can subscribe now or follow anywhere you get your podcasts. All right, quickly here, we'll uh, we'll round out this episode with a little look ahead. Um, we have the Spanish Grand Prix. So we're heading back over to Europe after our little uh, tiptoe into America here with the Miami Grand Prix last weekend. So this is the Spanish Grand Prix at the Circuit de Barcelona de Catalonia, which is, again, as I mentioned, a very um, well-used track, very familiar. It's the track we actually saw the early testing on this season. The first round of testing happened in Barcelona. So the drivers have already been here with these new cars. We've already got some data on what this track looks like. Now, that was pre-development for a lot of these teams, but regardless, they know the track well. They know the conditions of it. Uh, it is a fun track to race on. Lewis winning last year, he held pole and won the race last season. Um means nothing now considering where Mercedes is, but they will be hoping for an, another, um, you know, push forward after some positive signs early in testing in Miami. Um, the biggest thing for me looking at this is we're kind of at one, it feels like we're at a bit of a, a tipping point here season-wise where we, we're getting very close to the point where this is going to become a runaway race between the top two guys in the, in the driver's championships or, one of these other guys who's still within striking distance is going to make a move and try to try to get get in in on it. Obviously, the most likely to do that would be Carlos Sainz if he can really turn a good performance in for Ferrari. I think Ferrari more so than Red Bull is in a position where they are still going to allow either of their drivers, whomever becomes the best one, to to to, to sort of be the one that that they, they're going to let agree. them fight it out. I guess is what I'm trying yeah. to say. At this point, Charles obviously has a huge advantage over Carlos having. Uh, actually won some races <laughs> and Carlos has just been struggling to keep the car on the road. He had a good Miami Grand Prix. He'll be looking for a better Spanish Grand Prix, obviously a home race for him, which is also going to be really important. I know that that will matter. Um, I have That's a huge. hard time believing that Sergio Perez is really going to compete with Max Verstappen. I don't think Red Bull has that in the cards. They've picked their guy, but if there's a dark horse out there, who's ready to jump up and, and make something happen, let's say one of the other leaders doesn't finish, which could be very likely you know this is an opportunity for russell to get back on a podium he's never had a win um so lots of storylines going in we'll wait and see where they go big important bounce back week for a couple other guys further down the table lando norris needs a bounce back week after frustration in miami um a guy who's just been snake bitten like uh, fernando alonso the other spaniard i mean how how close has he been to just getting that car to the next level and it's just not been there um, yeah, it's frustrating what, for him. So what are you most looking forward to going into uh, Barcelona in a couple of weeks time? Well, I, I'm very much looking forward to the fact that it is a track that has been raced on for a long time now. So it's not like we're going into something that we don't know what to expect. And like the drivers love this track. So it's going to be, and it's got a good mix of high speed corners and low speed corners, two DRS zones, uh, long straights that leads to a sharp uh, chicane. It's, it's, it's going to be fun. It always is fun. And I actually am excited for Alonzo and signs for this race because signs could win this race. He's got the car to do it. He's going to have the motivation. He just had a good race where he was on the podium after a couple weeks of bad luck. So look for him to be hungry and want to take specifically want to take this track away from McLaren Verstappen and Alonzo, you better, he's going to be in this one. I know that. So let's, uh, let's just hope that those two guys are, are, are racing fast and, and trying to do great at their home track. 
Yeah, I mean, it's always fun when drivers get to go home and 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 compete there. They we have two Spanish drivers. The other big question mark for me is is Max Verstappen starting to gnaw away at Charles Leclerc's confidence as far as how this is. We talked about it in Miami, but like, where do you think Charles Leclerc's head is at? He's obviously got a lead. He's preparing to, you know, try to get another win back after having lost back to back here to Max. Is, is the inexperience showing a little bit, or is it just that, you know, he's, recognizing where he the, the fights he can and can't win and 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 is ferrari the other question i guess that is attached to that is like is half of the pressure that he's under just the fact that he's a ferrari driver like isn't there an additional level of expectation being that driver on that team Absolutely. considering how I mean, fast they have come up to being competitive yeah. after bad years like ferrari is like the iconic f1 car like that is the iconic Mercedes has been dominant over the last eight years, but Ferrari is where drivers want to be. They want to be a Ferrari driver. And I think Leclerc being there for a couple of years now and not performing at where their car wants to be, I think that's helped him deal with some of the losses and disappointments this year. Um, also, if it was someone else other than Verstappen that's been winning, I think it's different. Like you can't, you can't say like right now Verstappen is the best driver on, on the circuit. Like that's, I don't know if that's even debatable at this point. So if he keeps winning, it's less frustrating than if he was losing races to um, Perez or even Sainz. It's just like, okay, Verstappen, we know Verstappen's going to be one or two or three. Again, every time he's finished a race, he's won the race. So Leclerc can kind of sleep going, I just have to focus on beating Verstappen because I know I'm good. If it was, I have to focus on winning because there's three other guys that are constantly behind me or in front of me. I think that gets to be a little bit more in your head because it's not what am I doing wrong that I can't be up there, but what do I have to do to get ahead of this one guy that is always going to be there? It's a little bit of a different mindset, I think, but I think it's a very big difference. Certainly. And I mean, I think that when you think about what he went through last year with Lewis, you know, the, just the experience of being in the, in, as I said earlier, like kind of in that dogfight one one on one here, I mean, the edge has to be for max with, without question. It's, it's a, it's a hundred percent at this point, Max is, but he's chasing still, he still has to get yep. there. And the big question that looms over Red Bull all season long is uh, what's the condition of the car going to be come yeah. lap 57. You know what I mean? Because yep. they've, they have yet to have a clean race where they haven't either, either or car has had some issue. Even max struggled during practice this week. I mean, he had to retire yeah. the car because of again, failure. So um, certainly interesting. And then of course, as I say, uh, lots of storylines, further down the table as far as who's going to have to bounce back up but two weeks time to the spanish grand prix uh it goes may 22nd um obviously a regular sort of race weekend to lead into that always fun to be uh at the circuit to barcelona catalonia it's a good track it's exciting as you say lots of good passing opportunities and a track they know a lot better a lot more familiar (laughs) with which i do also think leads to better racing because they, they they have the information they need to know what they can and can't do with it. Right. So absolutely confidence going to turns confidence to know these are the three places I have had history in successfully passing someone or being passed. So you have that knowledge going in of the track conditions instead of going somewhere new where you're just like, I don't know what's going to happen at this race, but here we go. So it is just back to one of those 6am starts for us though. True. Very true. Max Verstappen did ha, has one win here pro- previous. He won in 2016. Since then, the only winner of the Spanish Grand Prix, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, is Lewis Hamilton. So uh, unlikely, 
at this point that we see Lewis Hamilton continue his streak. It'd be cool uh, though. Yeah, not not out of the question. You never know at, it, with this sport. I mean, thinking back to even race one where Lewis ended up on the podium in a race where, yeah. you know, the guys in front of him just kind of collapsed. Uh, it is possible, unlikely, but possible. Um, I think it's much more likely that Max or, or Charles is up there. And if it's Max, then he will get his second Spanish Grand Prix win. Look, Tyler, always fun. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everybody out there. Um, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you have questions or thoughts and things you want to share, please reach out, send those to us as we've already done today. We will get them on the show. It's always fun to hear from our listeners and always fun to help um, grow the Formula One family, people who are interested in the sport, whether you've watched one race or just the Netflix series, you're just getting into it, or you're a lifelong fan. We appreciate your listening to us. And uh, we will talk to you after the Spanish Grand Prix on May 22nd. Have a good one. Pit Stop Podcast is a presentation of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include... Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations and we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live create and share stories on these territories the ordinary podcasting network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination but a journey and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space